Welcome to the Freedom and Captivity podcast, a podcast about abolitionist visioning and organizing in Maine. I'm Catherine Besteman. I'm the host of the podcast. And today's topic is on immigrant detention and deportation. Uh, what is the legal structure that governs the removal and the deportation of immigrants from the state of Maine? How do we understand what they're doing? What is the impact on Mainers and on immigrant communities in Maine? And for those who are opposed to this uh, practice of carcerality, of this implementation of the carceral state, how can we fight against it? Today's guests on the impact of ICE, which is Immigrant and Customs Enforcement in Maine, we have Phil Mantis, who is the legal director of the Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project. We have Teresa and Sun Kim, uh, who will be talking about their own personal journey through, uh, through the ICE nightmare. And we'll be talking with Kelly Merrill and Reverend Zeb Green from D-ICE Maine. So Phil, we're gonna come to you first. And if you could talk with us a little bit about what ICE is, what, what, what does it do? Uh, how does it operate? Um, how do we understand its impact in Maine? Sure, um, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure being here. ICE stands for Immigration and Customs Enforcement. It's a law enforcement agency. Uh, it was created in 2002, uh, along with the creation of Depart the Department of Homeland Security, uh, which was created by the Bush administration um, in response to, partly in response to the September 11th attacks. Um, prior to uh, ICE's existence, uh, immigration enforcement uh, and adjudication fell completely under the Justice Department uh, under the former Immigration and Nationality Service. So uh, when Homeland Security was created, uh, they created two law enforcement bodies within Homeland Security that was tasked with um, enforcing immigration laws. Uh, so that would be Customs and Border Patrol, which is ICE's sister agency, uh, and of course, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. <clears throat> ICE is uh, focused on uh, uh, law enforcement within the border, within the interior of the United States. Uh, so they don't do anything with the border. Um, they're just uh, enforcing immigration laws just in the interior. Um, the thing I think was, uh, ICE does many different things. Uh, the, the big thing that they do, and that's, you know, I think relevant to this conversation is their enforcement and removal operations. Uh, so, um, the, the body of law that they are focusing on when they are, um, uh, in, you know, when they're arresting people and deporting them and so on is the Immigration and Nationality Act, which is, uh, it's a federal code, uh, it's federal statutes uh, that are contained in Title VIII of the United States Code. All immigration laws, federal uh, states don't have any right to create immigration laws or enforce immigration laws. Um, so uh, the consequence to um, being, uh, you know, here without a visa or undocumented can be uh, deportation. So ICE is looking for people who are removable from the United States. Uh, that could be because they um, have overstayed a visa uh, or they have violated the terms of their current status. That could be like permanent residency status or asylee status or refugee status, um, or they um, are looking for people who have absolutely no status. Uh, so the, um, the consequence of an, of an ICE interaction uh, for someone who falls in one of those categories is they may be detained by ICE uh, and they may face thereafter removal proceedings. Uh, so there's a part of the Immigration Nationality Act that says that for individuals who are removable from the United States, they have a right to um, go through immigration court proceedings. 
So that in a nutshell is what ICE does. Um, they uh, obviously operate uh, within all 50 states. Um, and uh, in Maine, they are located in South Portland, uh, currently on Gannett Drive near the mall. And uh, it's a smaller um, body of agents uh, who work uh, at the ICE office locally, um, but they have a, a statewide footprint. So they um, make arrests throughout the state uh, for individuals who they think are removable from the United States. Um, ICE, just to, just to be noted, uh, it can be um, divided into two parts. There's you know, ICE generally, then there's also a subset of ICE, um, although I think they, they think of themselves as sort of separated from ICE, which is Homeland Security Investigations, uh, or HSI. They also operate in the state of Maine, as well as the rest of the country. Um, and they're tasked with more, um, with kind of immigration cases that they may, they may hinge on criminality. Uh, or um, terrorist activities. Uh, so, and, and that means that a lot of what ICE does on, in terms of enforcement and removal operations, that's all civil in nature. So the types of arrests that they're making um, are civil uh, violations, violations of our Immigration and Nationality Act, which are largely just civil in nature. For, for example, so if you've violated the terms of your visitor visa by overstaying it and then are detained by ICE for that reason, um, you've, they're arresting you because you've violated a, a civil provision of the law, not a criminal. Uh, so these are largely uh, detainees who are um, civil detainees, um, unfortunately. Uh, ICE has, um, does not have a, uh, their own detention facilities in the state of Maine. They are uh, seeking to open one. Uh, currently, they contract with the Cumberland County uh, Sheriff's Department to have bed space at uh, the Cumberland County Jail, which is where they house people who are arrested in the state uh, or had been doing that um, historically. Recently, there's been a change in the, the ways uh, that they, um, the, you know, where they keep people, uh, people arrested in Maine. Uh, sometimes they're transferred uh, directly down to Stratford County, New Hampshire, uh, because ICE also has a contract with that county to keep people at, um, at their jail in Dover, New Hampshire. Um, and sometimes they are sent to other parts of the, of the United States, um, usually New England, um, oftentimes Boston. Um, uh, ICE has bed space contracts with other facilities in the, in the Boston area, Massachusetts area. Uh, so I hope that answers, uh, you know, gives a good yeah. introduction to ICE. Yeah, that's um, great. But there's a lot to say about ICE. Uh, stuff, but, uh, <laughs> I have some follow-up questions, Phil. Sure. Um, so, so ICE, ICE is a is is an agency that operates um, within the borders, not at the borders. We understand that. That's very clear. Um, and they they sort of move throughout society looking for people who are deportable, people who uh, are have have. Uh, for whatever reason, are not supposed to be authorized to be in the United States. Um, so, can you can you describe to us briefly how does ICE find people? What what tactics do they use to locate deportable people? Um, you know, they have their own intel, obviously. Um, but uh, you know, for people who may be removed because of criminal convictions, um, I you know I'm sure that they just follow um, you know arrest logs and newspapers potentially um, uh, court. Um, uh, court schedules, um, word of mouth sometimes. So they have informants uh, that they rely on from time to time. So people in communities who are able to, or willing to give information, information about other individuals who might be undocumented or might be removable or engaged in criminal activity. Um, and uh, uh, sometimes from 
seemingly innocuous stops by uh, uh, state police or local police, uh, where that local police officer, that state police officer may think a person in the car or the driver is undocumented. Sometimes that will trigger a, a call to ICE and ICE will come to the scene and investigate whether they have someone who they can um, bring into detention. Uh, so there are many ways um, that uh, that they you know try to figure out whether someone you know might be removable. Uh, sometimes through uh, interviews with the immigration service. Um, so for instance, if uh, let's say a U.S. citizen is married to um, someone who's in the United States who's not documented, um, you know that marriage may give that person a pathway to a permanent residency. That usually that always starts with a petition to the immigration service. Uh, to adjudicate whether um, that person is in a good faith marriage with the undocumented individual. Um, and uh, that comes through an interview. Um, and at that interview, sometimes ICE will show up. Uh, it's not very common in the state of Maine. It happens in other places. I've seen it happen in Boston, for instance, where I used to practice. Um, so, you know, that, in other words, USAS could tell, you know, uh, ICE that there's someone here who you might be interested in. Um, jails do this too. So county jails, you know, Anyone states you're in county jails or city jails, whatever, uh, they can notify federal law enforcement, uh, ICE specifically, of someone who might be removable. Um, there are agreements also between law enforcement bodies uh, around the country and ICE, uh, where ICE is or those those local law, law enforcement agencies are obligated to tell ICE uh, when they have someone in custody uh, who might be removable. So, Phil, this is interesting because you're using a lot of, you know, they might be, they think they could be, they look like they could be. Um, you're gesturing towards racial profiling here. Sure. Assessments on the part of assessors, people who are in positions to make judgments about other people. Hmm, this person looks risky. This person looks suspicious. Yep. And so, can you talk to us a little bit about the legality of things that we imagine to be illegal in this country, like racial profiling, um, as used by ICE? Yeah, sure. Yeah, they definitely engage in racial profile, profiling. Uh, um, I don't, you know, it's not a surprise to anyone on this call, I'm sure. Um, so if someone looks, you know, like not, they should not be in a certain area, um, or they may not be speaking English, um, that could cause, you know, a, a police officer, local police officer to ask for other documents aside from a driver's license, such as a passport or a visa. And if they're unable to produce those documents, um, then uh, ICE could be called. And of course, that's all a lot of times just triggered by just racial profiling. Um, someone may look Hispanic, um, they may have a driver's license, um, but then, you know, for some reason the cop thinks, hey, I think they might be here undocumented because, you know, they think that Hispanic people are always here undocumented. So then, they'll, you know, then they have that further inquiry. And if you're a driver of a car engaging with local law enforcement, you know, it's very difficult to assert your rights in that situation. Um, uh, such as not having to produce a visa to, to a local police officer. You don't have to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, and we'll say, you know, I don't have those things. I don't have documentation to be here in the United States. Um, and that could lead to, you know, ICE being called. So, um, you know, that, that is very problematic for lots of reasons. Um, you know, it's unconstitutional. Uh, but it, it doesn't, you know, and that, and that can lend itself well in a, maybe a criminal context uh, in terms of like suppressing evidence that, you know, led to the arrest um, because it, uh, you know, was started through racial profiling. Um, but that's very difficult to do um, once that person's in immigration court proceedings, which are not criminal proceedings. You don't have the same type of constitutional protections in immigration court um, as you would in criminal court. Uh, so um, it's more difficult to suppress evidence uh, based on like fourth 
Amendment violations or Fifth Amendment violations. So what you're describing, um, you know, is, sounds like the kind of a scenario that's that's somewhat terrorizing, where people, on the basis of what they look like or the language that they're speaking, can be approached by law enforcement um, who suspects them of um, of of being deportable, and they can be then alerted or handed over um, for further profiling and investigation by ICE, and. So, which may or may not lead to um, to, to other consequences. Right. So, what 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 sorts of rights do folks have? You've just said that that being put into immigration court um, detention and deportation proceedings or removal proceedings is civil and not criminal. Um, can you can you describe for us? Can immigrants contest this? Um, if there is problems in their paperwork, if mm -hmm. there are other reasons. Um, why people may have uh, may have uh, overstayed their visa, um, if they're you know have a, a pending applications for say asylum status, if they're married and have kids and families, um, if they're working, if they're uh, you know people who are just living their lives, um, who get swept up in this system, what sorts of rights does our legal system afford people? question. Uh, so just to start at the, the, you know, the initial interaction with ICE, you know, people have a Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. Um, so if ICE approaches them, they don't have to speak to that ICE officer without a, a lawyer present, and they can make that known to the uh, ICE officer. Um, they also have an obligation, however, to produce any immigration documents that they may have on them. So uh, for instance, permanent residents should have their green card on them at all times, and they should produce that if it's asked of them by an ICE officer. Um, but beyond that, uh, really small, um, you know, uh, duty to disclose, uh, you don't really have to say anything to a, an ICE officer or a CDP officer or an HSI officer. If you're interacting with them, you can assert your right to remain silent. And they honor that for the most part, at least here. Uh, and that's obviously not the case uh, uh, throughout uh, the entire agency. And by the way, you know, ICE is about 20,000 people. Uh, it's a massive, massive law enforcement agency. Um, so uh, you also have the right um, to uh, be uh, free of a, of a warrantless search. So if ICE comes to your home, you have they have to have a uh, warrant to search your home issued by um, the proper judicial authority. Uh, so that means it can't be a, a, a warrant that's produced within the agency. Sometimes that's a way they try to get around uh, having a real warrant is they'll produce something called an administrative warrant when they come to your house. That usually tricks people and they think, oh, they have the right to come to my house. They let them in. Um, which is not the case. So they, you know, just like, you know, having, a, a, you know, the Portland police come to your home, uh, they can't, they can't come into your house unless they have a warrant or permission to do so, or, or unless you waive that right, um, uh, which you can do just by action. So if you open the door uh, to a nice officer um, and make gestures that seem like you're inviting them in, that, that would be enough for them uh, to uh, reasonably argue that that right uh, was waived. Uh, when you're in immigration court, you have the um, the right to. Well, if you're in immigration detention, depending on you know your status before you're detained, um, and also whether you have any criminal convictions or certain criminal convictions, you could be eligible for a bond hearing uh, to be released on bond, which is like bail. Um, you have the right to produce any applications for relief in immigration court that you may be eligible for. Uh, that would be like, for instance, asylum, if you have a fear of, uh, of being persecuted in your home country, or let's say to your example, uh, being married to a US citizen, you know, that might make you eligible for permanent residency. So you could ask for um, a judge to hear your green card application, 
Uh, there's many other forms of relief available to individuals in the United States. So um, you do have the right to make those applications. You have the right to bring witnesses forth. You have the right to bring evidence. But, you know, uh, immigration court, um, you know, there are things that happen in immigration court proceedings that um, really uh, trample on people's rights to do those things, like pre present competent evidence or, um, uh, you know, bring forth witnesses. One right you do not have in immigration court, well, you do have the right, you have the right to have a count lawyer in immigration court, but that right does not trigger an obligation for the court to provide an attorney. So people don't have, so in the criminal context, um, if you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided to you. Uh, that's not the case in immigration court. If you cannot afford an attorney, you will proceed by on, on your own, which is about how the vast majority of respondents in immigration court proceed, which is pro se, um, which is you know um, nearly impossible to do uh, sufficiently, um, especially if you're dealing with um, the very complicated Immigration and Nationality Act provisions that govern these forms of relief like asylum or adjustment of status, you know, uh, AKA applying for a green card or other more esoteric forms of relief such as cancellation or removal. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, thanks. And I can say I haven't, having spent quite a bit of time in immigration court um, testifying on behalf of people who have been put into deportation um, proceedings. Uh, these are courts where there's, you know, a prosecutor who can, who can be um, quite ruthless in, yeah. in attacking folks who are trying to represent themselves. And so appearing in a context like that without uh, legal counsel can be completely can, soul destroying. It, it, it can be extraordinarily um, uh, terrible. Yeah. Uh, one final question before we turn to Teresa. Uh, you, you had made the mention about um, the, the sort of a, the um, difference uh, that comes into play with folks who perhaps have been incarcerated, um, who have been convicted of, of a crime of some sort, and um, who then may be faced with removal uh, after completing their sentence. And so I want to ask you, isn't this sort of a situation of double jeopardy where a person is caught for, you know, maybe, you know, possession or um, some sort of a traffic related violation or failure to pay fines or failure to appear, they end up incarcerated. Um, ICE is then notified that they, uh, that they um, are an immigrant of, uh, that holding a status that may make them deportable. And this can be true as I understand it, even for people who have legal status to be here that there are the, the, the number of laws for which people can be deported has been rapidly expanding um, over the past, say, decade. And so can you, can you describe very briefly um, this context? Somebody who runs afoul of the law, gets convicted of a crime, gets incarcerated, and then has their status revoked and is put into removal proceedings after serving their sentence. Yeah, so that, that's pretty common trajectory for a lot of people. Um, you know, conviction of a, a crime that may make them removable. Um, and then after their obligation with the state is done um, in terms of incarceration, ICE will, kind of close in time to when that is done, ICE will put a, what's called a hold on them. Um, it will notify um, the, the detainee about that hold. And then when they're um, released from the state custody, ICE necessarily takes them right in. Um, and then they start their um, time in ICE custody. And that person might have the, hopefully will have the, um, the right to go to immigration court. Um, sometimes that underlying conviction that led to that ICE arrest, that ICE detention may make them ineligible for bond or may make it so that their bond is posted incredibly high. So they may be facing removal proceedings um, incarcerated, um, you know, while they're in jail. 
and remember this is civil detention, but it's prolonging the, the jail time that was already imposed on them. They're, they're, right. gonna, they're, they're in jail a lot longer simply because they violated um, a provision of the Immigration Nationality Act, allegedly, because that's gonna be proven in immigration court. Um, and, um, and then once they're removed, uh, ICE has uh, a new task. They have to get that person out of the United States. Uh, and that can be very difficult sometimes, if not impossible. Um, so people may find themselves in jail for even like for a lot longer, uh, many months later, longer rather, um, after uh, their, their removal proceedings are over because uh, ICE is unable to get proper travel documents for them or um, the their country, a purported country of origin does not recognize that person as a, uh, as a citizen. Or there might be other reasons um, that ICE is unable to, um, to get them uh, out of the United States. So they might find themselves in uh, extended incarceration with ICE um, and not able to get a bond hearing sometimes, um, another bond hearing, or what's called a bond redetermination. Uh, so um, it's, uh, it's inhumane because people, uh, you know, by just but for their uh, immigration status or their citizenship, um, they are uh, they the 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 penalty imposed on that criminal conviction is is much longer um, than it, what it would be otherwise. Yes, that sounds like outright abuse. Um, it's sort of indeterminate incarceration. Yeah. While, while people figure out what to do with you, um, it, right. it's hard to imagine anything worse than that. Mm -hmm. um, what a system. Thank you, Phil. I I'm going to turn to Teresa and Sun Kim now, um, who uh, have had some uh, up close and personal experience with this system. Um, Teresa, can you can you um, begin with your story? Yeah. Hi. Um, so, I guess. Well, I can start with this: that Sun and I met when we were kids. Uh, we went to the same schools. Pretty much grew up together. Um, pretty much grew up around the same people for the most part. Um, and then he got in trouble. Um, want to tell him? <laughs> Hi, everyone. Well, uh, as a child, I mean, uh, you know, growing up in Maine is just, uh, uh, you know, from a totally different country, um, you're kind of misplaced. You don't know where you belong. I mean, you know, growing up, not able to speak any English and just going through the system. Um, the school system, is just, it was very difficult uh, when also your uh, parents doesn't even speak the language. So, you know, it was pretty rough. But I mean, uh, um, as, you know, as time went by, it's just I, you know, I eventually got in trouble. I didn't have any mentor. I didn't have any big brother to, um, you know, see as a role model. So I got myself in trouble. So with that said, I mean, you know, growing up here, uh, I was just you know, a normal kid, but I just, I didn't understand the whole legality of, of, of being um, placed in detention, you know, as soon as I got in trouble. Um, I didn't understand that part until that one final mistake that I made um, you know, at 19 uh, really uh, put me in a position where it was just, it, it, um, it was just a life sentence. I mean, I'm living it today. Yes. So in December of 2000, Sun was sentenced for a robbery, robbery burglary um, and was given a 19-year sentence. So he was to serve 14 years and six years probation. And the same day that he was sentenced, ICE put an immigration hold on him. 
Um, so he was transferred over to Maine State Prison. He did his time there. He was released August, uh, excuse me, April 18th of 2014. Um, immediately upon release, ICE picked him up and took him into custody. Um, I had argued with Maine State Prison and I said, you know, he hasn't been able to do programs. He wasn't able to do the reintegration process. And it was all because of the ICE hold. And I said, you do not have to cooperate with ICE. Like it's not an obligation. They can't force you to abide by that hold. And of course there's lack of education in Maine as most will know and some may not know. Um, so he was transferred into custody needless to say. So in June, he actually went in front of a judge and they held him. They wouldn't give him a bond hearing because they said he was a flight risk. And we argued with them. We said he just did, you know, 14, 15 years in prison. Like, how is he a flight risk? And they wouldn't hear it. So we went in front of the judge and he was order removed as of June of 2014. Um, so he stayed in custody. Um, they did these reviews for him that they're supposed to do every 90 days saying, oh, we're still detaining you, um, you know, you're a threat or this or that. Um, it was unclear every time they did a review and they held him up until November of 2014. So he ended up doing 180 days in ICE custody. And then they ended up um, telling him, hey, you're going home. And he's like, what do you mean? You know, and they're like, you're going home. And then he just started asking a bunch of different officers. He called me at like 630 in the morning. He's like, find out what's going on. Um, so that was that part of it. But the challenge was during his whole case was the information that ICE actually had. It was incorrect. Yeah, they had uh, um, they had me. Uh, listed being in, uh, born in Cambodia, which uh, which I wasn't born in Cambodia. I don't even have a citizenship in Cambodia. So even the country of Cambodia, where they try to send me to or um, or to port to, don't even recognize me as their natural citizen. So therefore, I was in limbo. So they couldn't do anything, but um, but had to release me, which they did release me. But eventually, they had picked. Uh, um, end up picking me up again um, when this new administration came around where um, you know, he had made everyone a priority uh, regardless of um, a minor infraction. So you're on a list somewhere to be monitored, what, what I'm hearing you say, because of your, of your initial removal order, which was then suspended because they couldn't deport you to the country that they believed they were supposed to deport you to because you don't actually have citizenship in that country. Um, but that left you vulnerable to being picked up a second time because now you're in the system. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yes, um, yes. And uh, it's, it's more like, you know, they knew it from day one that they couldn't deport me anyway, but they had, they, they held me anyway, just, just to put me through the process. I mean, a filled bed is money, you know? So, uh, you know, just like any uh, subcontracted um, uh, facility by, you know, uh, by the federal government, it's, you know, they're getting federal funding. I mean, unlimited amount of money just to hold detainee. I mean, um, being a detainee, uh, my, my first experience was just, it was horrible. It was worse than being a prisoner, you know, in the state, uh, main state prison system, you know? Um, I was treated inhumanely. I mean, I've seen other detainees being treated uh, inhumanely. I mean, abuse was there. 
Sorry, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I, I, that's that's such a, 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 a tragically common story. Um, can you can you tell us were you in a federal facility or were you in a private a private facility that was a subcontractor? Um, I was in a uh, um, a regular county jail. I, actually, I was in an, almost in every single facility that they had, um, you know, within the East Coast and the Midwest. Um, so even uh, you know even the facilities on an airport strip, they they actually have a an, a facility that's just like it looks like um, airplane hangars, but they're detention facilities. Wow. So. Like as soon as you get off the plane, all shackled up, chained up, it, it could be hundreds of us just being chained up, um, five point restraints, just walking into this huge um, airplane hangar. And, you know, right then and right there, you're being processed, you're being held there. Like, I mean, you know, bologna and cheese, <laughs> you know, um, a bottle of water. and. And that's all you get. I mean, you know, it's just like you couldn't use the bathroom. You couldn't do anything. It's just, I mean, it, it was it was hard for me, you know, even to this day talking about it. But, you know, I just want to get this story out also. I mean, um, you know, and I thank my wife for, you know, advocating for me and everything else. It's just, it's, there's so much more that people should, you know, be aware of or just, uh, you know, needs to know. Yeah. But, um, but within, you know, my situation, it's like, you know, a country, you know, that my parents are from, but I was never born in that country. But yet, you know, the country doesn't recognize me as a, 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 a naturalized citizen, you know, but when I got picked up the second time, because of this, uh, this last administration, they had issued, issued me a, uh, um, a uh, traveling document, which is, you know, you're able to travel to that country within um, a certain period of a time, you know, to be able to be deported to. So um, eventually they, they had gotten fingerprints and, and you know, was able to um, press that country to issue me a, a, uh, a travel document. By force. By force. <laughs> so, force. So, you know, going back to my first time, they don't recognize me as a citizen, but don't, with this last administration, it's like all of a sudden, I'm their natural citizen. So this was an agreement made between the US government and the Cambodian government to require the Cambodian, to somehow force the Cambodian government to, to take you, even though you weren't born there, even though you actually don't have any, <laughs> any particular personal connection to the country. Do I yeah. understand that correctly? Yeah, that's correct. And what we had done on my side, because um, obviously I was home, is I started calling the Cambodian embassy. I called the Cambodian embassy in Massachusetts. I called the Cambodian embassy in Washington. Um, I got in contact with immigration lawyers over in Cambodia um, to get phone numbers and contacts over there to talk to the embassies over there and who I should talk to. Um, and every person that I interacted with said, we have no knowledge of him. We have no paperwork on him. And I begged and pleaded for you know them to put that in writing for me um because that was the only thing at, at that point that we had on our side to go in front of the judge again um but unfortunately it couldn't be done um i wasn't able to travel to cambodia to get the paperwork and who knows if it would have made it through the mail uh, so, so, so Teresa, this entire time you're on the outside advocating soon as on the inside being moved from place to place in shackles 
And can you can you um, help us understand the extent to which you were able to stay in communication with each other and the extent to which both of you, Teresa and Soon both, uh, had a sense of what was happening? What was the process by which you understood what the proceedings were, what your rights were, uh, what the plans were for soon, what your what your um, future was going to look like. How are you navigating the system is what I'm getting at. Very emotionally. <laughs> um, from the start, uh, I was really upset. I felt hopeless. Um, I wasn't sure what to do because we know of people from Maine that's been deported, but yet we've never had the conversation like this where oh, you know, it was a horrible experience. And I mean, I literally had nobody. So what I did is I started doing my research online. I started watching YouTube videos. Um, and that brought me in contact with a few people that knew about deportation. I was calling every and any lawyer I could call. Um, and the other challenge we were running into is the cost. I mean, for the amount that you have to pay for an immigration attorney, like it's justified because of the work they have to do. Don't get me wrong. But at that time, I couldn't afford it. I mean, I was making 1070 an hour supporting four of us, you know, because we had two kids um, that were mine on my side. And so I felt really hopeless. And what I was doing is I would call down to Burlington and I would ask, where is he? Um, and then I finally figured out a about the ICE detainee locator. So I would track him that way as well. Um, but I literally was like blowing up their phone and they said, listen, just give up. He's getting deported. Like he's a criminal, he's a threat. Uh, you need to give up on him, let him get deported. And I'm like, no, he's not. Like I know more than what you know, you know? And it wasn't until the day that I had called um, that we thought he was getting removed um, because of the information they were giving me, which they lie to people all the time. But the ICE agent on the phone when I called Burlington, he goes, you know, you sound pretty attractive. You sound pretty cute. He's like, you should just give up on him. He's like, you know, come down. He's like, we could meet. Oh and as, yeah. And as soon as I heard that, that set me off to no extreme. I'm like, you're a government agency. You're a representation of a government. And this is how you speak to somebody. So the emotional part of hopeless kind of left. And that's when I got angry. And I said, you know what? They, I now have a personal target on them. Like, they're not going to disrespect me that way. They're not going to insult me that way. Like, that's just not okay. I can only imagine what they're doing to other families. Um, so that's when I really, really started doing my research um, and getting in contact with more people. So then I was able to, you know, navigate with him of like, where are you? Um, if they were going to move him and he couldn't call me, we had a system where a friend of his that he had met through or an associate, I should say, would call me or their family would call me and say, hey, they're moving him. So we set up a pretty good system and we did that with other people as well. So we all did our own little like inside networking. And so how, how did you ultimately end up? Um, it, it sounds like you were successful in the incredible work that you put in. You're, you're together again. Uh, he's not behind bars and he's not in Cambodia. How did that happen? Oh boy. <laughs> so <laughs> December 18th of, um, no, excuse me, uh, March 5th. That's right. It was March 5th of 2018. We received a letter in the mail and it was a certified letter saying that he had two weeks, a 14 day notice to report into ICE. Um, this was something that the ACLU had pushed for as well as the Asian Law Caucus. 
that ICE had to give people a 14 day notice before they were gonna um, re-detain them. So here I am pregnant with our youngest at this point. So now we have four children and I lost my mind. Like you wanna talk about pregnancy emotions on top of like all these other rush of emotions because we had just checked in December and he said to his supervision officer, um, John Lanai, he said, you know, am I a priority? What's going on? Like, and he goes, you're not a priority because you're doing everything you're supposed to. You're not even on our radar. And then here it is a few months later and we're getting a letter saying that he needs to re-detain. So I ended up passing, we we literally had to sell everything we had. Um, I had to move me and the kids to Florida with my parents because I had no other options to stay in Maine. Um, He came down with me, moved us in because I was pregnant. And then he flew back and they actually went through his probation officer. They called her and said, we want you to bring him in. Um, and she, not knowing she didn't, she could have said no, said, oh, okay. You know, she thought she had to obligate herself to do this. So it was, a, and so he was on six years probation. So he had no choice, but to comply with his probation officer. Right. Um, so he turned himself in on March 21st and I took him back into custody then. Um, and in that process, they sent him down to Stratford County. Um, and he was held down there and he actually went to see the consulate in Texas, met with the Cambodian consulate. Um, and why that happened, what a lot of people don't know is that the American ICE agents are not supposed to be in the same room when these people are meeting with the consulate, but yet they had an ICE agent in the room. Um, on top of that, they were refusing to give Sun his medication that he needs. Um, he takes a weekly shot of Embril. Um, if he doesn't have his shot, he ends up in a wheelchair. And if it projectedly, if he doesn't go without his shot for uh, quite a period of time, it could be three months, six months, he ends up in a wheelchair. Um, so that at that point, he ended up in a wheelchair. And they brought him in to see the Cambodian consulate. And they, from my understanding, they grabbed him. As he's in a wheelchair, he can't defend himself because he can't move, right? They manually fingerprinted him. They held his head by his hair to take a photo of him. Um, and they forced him to scratch a signature on paperwork. Um, and that's how they get these travel documents is they take that back to Cambodia um, and they come up with what to me is a fake document, right? Because he didn't willfully do it. Um, they just forced it um, and they got a travel document for him. So he was scheduled to be deported July 2nd of uh, 2019, excuse me. And so yeah, no, they took, took it back and yeah, okay. So sorry, these dates all in my head, they all run together. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of dates. Um, so he was scheduled to be deported on July 2nd. And unfortunately what had happened, but well, it was unfortunate, but it was fortunate for us that he was assaulted by a corrections officer at Stratford. Um, and so with that, you know, he went to the ICE liaison in the jail and he's like, I was assaulted because they also put him in um, holding, you know, thinking he was the problem. But then when they reviewed the cameras and everything, it was actually the officer. And that opened up an OIG investigation. So as soon as that happened, um, they pulled him off the plane. They said, he's part of an active investigation. We have to pull him off the plane. So at that point, I was like, okay, now we're going all in, right? Now you're playing poker. It's like either we're going all in and getting him permanently here, or we just give up and wait and see what happens. So we started doing more research. He was doing research himself. 
Um, I was calling the OIG's office. There was like, oh, we have no record of this investigation. We don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, okay, something's not adding up at this point. Um, so I kept that in my back of my mind. And then son called me one day and he said, oh, are you aware of the Calderon class action? And I was like, no. And at this point, I'm working on my bachelor's in legal studies to become an immigration attorney is my ultimate goal because of what I've witnessed from my own family and my husband and other people going through that I'm like, all right, this fair game now. Um, so now I'm looking at it from like the legal perspective of what I've been taught and looking at what I've dealt with personally. And so I looked into this case and I ended up um, emailing uh, Adrienne Lavelle's, which she's with the ACLU of Massachusetts. And I was like, hey, would my husband qualify under this class action? And she's like, well, what's your situation? And I said, well, we've been married for, um, let me see, it was like six or seven years at that point. And she's like, yeah, absolutely. So I started the process with paperwork. Um, and once that happened, that opened the door for us that even after the OIG investigation, that he was part of a class action. Um, and so we started doing negotiations with the government of what we wanted. Um, and what I wanted was time to do paperwork where I'm an American citizen. I was born here to be able to petition for my husband and do an adjustment of status. Um, and ICE had never given us that chance. We didn't even know about it because they don't tell you these things. Nobody tells you anything. And they violated his due process um, because they were claiming they were doing these 90 day reviews and that they were sitting down with him doing these reviews and giving him the option to challenge that what they were coming at him with. And that never happened. It was mainly like the ICE liaison came in. He goes, here's your paperwork. And we're going to continue to detain you. Um, and that's a violation. They're not supposed to do that. Um, so that just gave us more leverage and gave the ACLU more leverage to say, hey, this isn't okay. You're violating civil rights now. We're violating due process. Um, so it came down to Adriana going to court and we had a judge in Massachusetts who pretty much told ICE, either you come to these agreements and give me the information I want, or I'm going to be calling people in from Washington. Well, we all know that the big bosses don't like it when they get called in, especially when there's lower level people aren't doing what they're supposed to. Right. Um, and so at that point from the emails that I had received from the ACLU and the government attorney for ICE was saying that even that government attorney for ICE was saying, listen, just let these guys, cause there was five people involved with the class action, let these guys go home, like try to come to an agreement, you know, don't push for their removals, you know, like even their own attorney. <laughs> so, yeah. So finally, Adriana had called me on Christmas Eve and she goes, uh, how's everything? How are you feeling? You know, typical conversation. And I'm like, okay, um, what's going on? Cause I knew the judge had the, the case on his desk and she's like, oh, you sound like you're driving. And I'm like, yeah, but it's okay. I have you on the car phone. Like I know hands-free, you know, whatever. And she's like, um, you might want to pull over. And at this point dread, right. Cause just her tone. And she's like, Teresa. And I go, yeah. She goes, are you pulled over? And I'm like, kind of, cause I was pulling into a post office and she goes, I'm going to redo this order. And at this point, my heart sunk. 
like here I am pregnant, my heart's sinking. And I'm like, Oh my God, like they've ruled against us. They're just going to remove him. I'm pregnant. What am I going to do? You know? So it was a mixture of emotions. And she read the order saying that ice was going to release him and release him that day. And they only had until like 6 PM on Christmas Eve to release him. And that there was going to be a year restraining order from ice that he would, him and the other people that was part of the class action was not going to be able to be removed for a year. And that was the agreement. And I lost it. Like I was crying so hard from joy. It, it was crazy because I just, I was like, oh, I just did what I, I'm trying. You know what I mean? Like it's another win. And he didn't even know. Um, she had called me at like 1.15 in the afternoon. He wasn't able to call me till four. And I was like, have you heard anything? He's like, no. And I told him, I was like, you're coming home. And he's like, you know, stop BSing. What? I'm like, no, you're coming home. We won. And so then it was just me making arrangements because here I am in Florida, he's in Massachusetts. <laughs> so I'm like making arrangements with uh, his cousin. I was like, can you please go get him? I know it's Christmas Eve. And his cousin's like, absolutely. Um, so they were supposed to bring him to Burlington to be released. Um, and they didn't do that because they ha didn't have enough agents on hand because of the holiday. Um, so his cousin ended up having to drive down to, um, what's that? What is it? It's in near Springfield. I can't even think of the name of the place right now. It's another detention facility and pick him up, but it's like three hours from me. It's, um, it's, it's county jails, uh, but subcontracted by Department of Homeland. Right. Um, and there's, there's so many uh, facilities that they're, you know, it's, you know, they can just stop anywhere and, and drop you off. Yeah, just drop you off. I mean, um, I've been in a, uh, I've been in a van like uh, dog cage. Well, it's a dog cage um, for like six, seven hours to, you know, in, in a van, no bathroom bricks, all the way down to New Jersey to another place where, you know, the airport um, hangar. There's so many different places. Like, um, it's just, it's just so crazy of what they're able to, you know, be. Um, how they're able to operate. Right. How they're able to operate and how they're able to, how they, how they uh, not they're able, but how they choose to treat people. Um, right. And you know what you're describing is both such a such an opaque system. Uh, it's a system you know that's that's clearly designed to destroy families, um, but yeah. also a system designed to dehumanize and exhaust people. Um, so I, I really congratulate you um, both of you on on hanging in there for each other and with each other and finding a way to maneuver through this incredibly dense and difficult system. Uh, you're you're both back in Maine now. Yeah, we're both back in Maine. I was able to fly him home on Christmas. Um, and then part of with him being part of the class action, we needed to be in the Northeast. So we moved back to Maine. Um, so we're living here now. Um, and we're actively working on his case, um, trying to, you know, do a few more things, the adjustment of status and things that he's supposed to do legally. Um, we have our attorney, uh, Bethany Lee from GBLS in Boston. And she's absolutely amazing. Um, but of course, you know, there's, we still have PTSD. We, we still have the threat. Um, you know, we don't walk out the door freely. Like most people that, Hey, we're going to take our kids to the park. Like, yeah, we'll walk out our door, but we're looking around to see if we see ice agents or anybody that looks like one, you know, we're checking to see if we have department of Homeland vehicles, because it's like, even though we have an open case and they're supposed to leave him alone, they don't always abide by that. You know, we go to the park with our kids and we can't even fully enjoy it because it's like, we're constantly looking around. You know, um, he. I can't take any chance of speaking right now. 
yeah, I mean, even us speaking right now and this going live, like puts a target on us, you know, because they don't like it. I mean, I, we, I watched like immigration nation and living undocumented. And I'm like, I know how these people feel, you know, and it's just, it's crazy. I mean, my poor daughter, she's three years old and we're having her treated right now because of the stress and what she's gone through and the separation from him that she, sorry, I get emotional. She, um, she has PTSD herself at three years old that it's like, if son leaves to go wash the car or even get groceries out of the car, she's at the door. Where's my daddy? You know, daddy don't leave. Um, it's traumatized her and, you know, we're working on that right now with her, but of course it's like, even when son goes to work or what have you, or goes to the grocery store for me or appointments, you know, it's, it's a challenge because my daughter's like, where's my dad? Is daddy coming back? Um, you know, he has to FaceTime her even if he's at the store because she's freaking out so bad of, you know, where's my daddy? She screams in her sleep, you know, um, it'll be the middle of the night. Everything will be fine. You know, they had tubby time, bath time routine, uh, bedtime routine. And she goes to bed and she's screaming at 2 a.m. going, daddy, don't leave. Daddy, don't leave. Don't take my daddy. Don't take my daddy. It's like, how do you cope with this? You know, so it's, it's an everyday thing that we go through. It's, it's still a nightmare we're living and ICE doesn't care. No, no, they don't. Um, their, their job is specifically not to care. And, um, and, and I think that the, the job of caring falls to um, people who I, I want to turn to next, Kelly and Zeb. But first, I want to thank you, Teresa and Sun, for sharing your story with us. Um, in, incredibly, incredibly, just heartbreaking um, story and amazing journey. Uh, really heroic efforts that that you've um, that you've been engaging in for you know what is it seven years at this point um, to try to navigate through the system and find some closure and some relief while sustaining your family and sustaining um, sustaining your children. Uh, so wishing you all the best as you, as you close out, as I, you hopefully close out this deeply traumatic story. I, I want to turn to Kelly and Zeb, who are at the forefront of fighting against precisely this sort of um, universal threat, this sort of terrorizing system here in Maine. Kelly and Zeb have uh, created de-ice Maine. Um, they're taking on the location of a deportation center here in Scarborough. And uh, Kelly and Zeb, can you, can you explain to us a little bit about what DICE Maine is and what is it that brought you to do this work? Um, first, uh, thank you very much for this forum. We really appreciate the opportunity to speak about this issue. And a special thanks to Teresa and Sun for being so courageous and um, sharing this deeply personal story. Um, so yeah, DICE Maine was formed in January. Um, some activists were wondering what was happening about the facility and a surprising amount of us, um, as well as legislators and city council persons did not even know about the facility. Um, so we came together, uh, coalition of individuals, concerned uh, individuals and activists from around the state to uh, work against this facility um, in Scarborough. And do you wanna talk about coming to the work? How you came to the work? 
Yeah. Um, and again, I just thank you, Kelly, for that introduction. And of course, thank you, Teresa and Soon, for your um, your story and sharing it with us and your your courage to put yourselves out there. I know how ICE does target people and target truth speakers. So thank you. Um, one of the big dedications to coming to the work is how common these stories are. Unfortunately, they are the most devastating experiences in a person's life and a family's life. And they happen to so many people. They are ubiquitous within the United States of America. And so it, it, it needs to be challenged. Um, I came to immigration work uh, myself after a delegation I went to to Palestine learning about the oppression of Palestinians um, and seeing and, and getting to meet people who have uh, an occupying government treat them with no rights, be able to do raids in their homes, being able to detain anyone at will being able to just um, barge in doors, kick people out of their homes, uh, steal homes, uh, take children. And that experience while in Palestine, I'd never, I, I grew up, I'm white, I have a lot of privilege, completely sort of unaware of how much injustice is actually in the world. Um, and I saw that I was um, really changed forever. And when I came back to the United States, um, it was about the time that Trump was talking about sending troops to the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, and part of the reason he was saying that we needed troops was these quote unquote caravans and, you know, using other sort of racist language to make people afraid of, um, you know, Central Americans and brown people coming to the U.S. border. He kept saying that, you know, they might throw rocks, they might throw breaks, they might throw something. So we need our soldiers and our troops. And that language paralleled so much of what I was hearing in Palestine that, you know, children would constantly be arrested because someone quote unquote threw a rock. And I was like, if this, this rhetoric is the same as that rhetoric, and it is telling me that we are going to see the same abridgment of rights. So I, I, I moved to the uh, US-Mexico border in El Paso, Texas, and was an organizer there for many years um, helping with uh, asylum seekers, uh, doing a lot of direct support um, to shelters, both in El Paso and in Juarez, the sister city of Mexico, and doing a lot of protest work. And living there, numerous people would come and sort of say, you know, what can we do in the rest of the country to support you along the border? And our answer was always, immigration enforcement is happening every single place in this country. Like to imagine that this sort of racist policies of the US are only along the Southern border in uh, the US and Mexico is a ridiculous fantasy that puts countless people at risk because ICE is destroying families and destroying lives throughout the entire United States. The best thing we can do is illustrate um, this fact that people um, are being targeted by the government every single place. And then for me, come COVID, I ended up being displaced from Texas and came back to Maine where I have family. And uh, as I was getting my sort of like situation uh, settled here in Maine, that's when uh, 
I became aware of this ICE facility and DICE Maine started to form. And really as a group, all the activists who were part of it, we all knew that this injustice was happening. There wasn't really, as we could find, a vessel of protest and change out there targeting ICE specifically in this way. ILAP does fantastic work on the, the legal end of things and helping people with their legal status, but the um, the protest element that needed to be visible to make this work um, have legs and ha have real traction, we didn't see it. And so that started being the initial conversations of DICE Maine. And I'd like to invite Kelly to talk a little bit more about the different ways, because we haven't just protested, we have. Yeah, so, so um, we have a three-arm approach to the work, which includes um, legislative policy work, uh, direct action, and then direct community support. Um, and that's actually how Teresa and I know each other. Um, DIs Maine uh, would love to help um, uh, Teresa and Sun with their case in whatever way we're able. Um, and I came to this work having lived down in DC and Northern Virginia for many, many years. My friends and neighbors um, were largely undocumented. My husband and the father of my child was undocumented for a large part of our marriage, um, which made things exceedingly difficult um, for me. I was very, very sick and um, he couldn't get a license. He couldn't help in, in so many ways because of his status. Um, and those of us who came together around this issue recognize that ICE is an oppressive, racist, and rogue agency that operates without accountability, transparency, or oversight. Um, and Scarborough was a, is our target because that's where this facility is. But um, as Phil from ILAP earlier said that ICE is seeking to open um, a facility here and that makes sense to a lot of us who've been worried about that because Maine is economically um, depressed. So the story um, about ICE being in Maine at all about this facility in Scarborough, um, the story broke uh, in February of 2020 when Nick Schroeder from the Bangor Daily News wrote an article. And then shortly after that, the pandemic came down. So really nothing at all happened um, until some of us coalesced around this issue. But by that time, um, the planning and zoning um, in Scarborough had already gone ahead and, and said that the facility complies um, in the ways that they needed to comply. The, there had been a 15 year lease signed between Josh Soley um, and the General Services Administration. The General Services Administration handles uh, leasing and other contracts for agencies. So there was no way to see that, even that this um, facility was coming. They operate in absolute obscurity. Um, and so unfortunately we end up having to be really reactive because the facility is there, it's a done deal. GSA has the opportunity to invite a different agency in um, it's already problematic because it exists. It, it abuts the veterans. Um, there's a veterans mental health facility next door, um, which 
the the VA is not um, terribly happy about. They were really concerned about protests and things. Um, and the GSA was quick to reassure the Veterans Administration that that wasn't going to be an issue, that the facility is very low key and not ostentatious. But if you drive by there, there's a big black metal fence with barbed wire at the top. Um, and there's also the American Legion like 50 yards from the facility. Uh, so these are, these are bad faith players. They're not good neighbors. Um, and we've been working against them ever since. Uh, sometimes we, for instance, we targeted Josh Soley who signed that 15 year contract and is, is profiting over $11 million over the course of that 15 uh, year contract um, with potential leverage points. Uh, besides that, we've been working to put in place protections. Um, so Scarborough has since passed a, an ordinance preventing further expansion of the, the, the facility, also preventing any overnight stays at the facility. Um, as many know, ICE has 72 hours to process detainees through their system. Um, and if ICE were playing by the rules, that would actually provide some protections. Um, but as, as Teresa has well illustrated, that is not the case. Um, beyond that, uh, the Scarborough Police Department, um, the police chief, uh, Robert Moulton, just put in uh, standard operating procedures around ICE and um, have gone a long way to protecting um, black and brown citizens from interrogation based upon the color of their skin um, by making it very clear that we will not be, that Scarborough will not be cooperating in any way with immigration and customs enforcement um, officials. So it sounds like um, it's, it's on the one hand, it's a done deal. On the other hand, it sounds like D.I.S. Maine and your partners is successful at trying to kind of box in the possibilities for um, the ICE facility to, to make as significant a footprint in Maine as perhaps it might have had you not been able to do this work. Um, we are not in the position where the, the facility can be, can be canceled. It's, it's there, it's there for 15 years. Is that the correct understanding? That um, is where we, we currently understand things to be. I mean, in theory, um, like when we protested Josh Soley of Maine Realty Advisors, like one of our protests was, you know, titled Evict Ice. Like he could, in theory, um, just evict them and say, I'm not going to rent to you anymore. Um, so that's one of our big requests. I um, see. So you're still pushing for the removal of the facility. If it's possible, it's not our, our main focus. As, as you looked at, our main focus right now has been sort of, um, boxing in ICE and we'd love to look at other municipalities um, and places where we have you know, strong support to start passing these resolutions to not allow our ordinances to not allow ICE facilities to be built in their, um, in their communities. Because while we can't necessarily get rid of this ICE facility, it's been also very complicated as every pretty much level of government has tried to pass the buck to someone else as we looked at local Leaders, they said this is a federal issue. As we looked at federal issues, you know, they, um, like 
our Congress people were telling us that there's really nothing that they can do and suggested we talk to, you know, the state and the state reps, just everyone managed to not have accountability for where ICE builds its facilities. And as such, ICE gets to do whatever it wants to do in the meantime and then the confusion. So right. it's complicated. That, but yeah, that's a modus operandi. I think, I think we heard that very clearly in Tristan's account as well. Um, people sort of passing the buck over who's responsible for notification and information. Um, we have a, sorry, we, we have a really powerful opportunity in Maine though with, with home rule um, so that if municipalities pass an ordinance preventing ICE, then ICE can't come to, to their town. Um, and as Zeb was mentioning, it would be to, to pass any statewide policy preventing ICE, um, there would really need to be that kind of movement at the ground level in different municipalities to pass ordinances or resolutions um, preventing the facility, preventing cooperation with agents, um, just making sure that ICE can't conduct its business as usual. So thanks for clarifying that point. That, that actually leads to the final question I wanna, um, I wanna ask each, each of the panelists, each of you to address uh, briefly. We're, we're almost out of time here. Um, Freedom and Captivity is an abolitionist visioning project, uh, trying to provide opportunities for people to imagine a, a better society than what we're currently living in, a society which prioritizes different sets of values, um, a different understanding of, of how it is we wanna to live together, what the basis is on which we wanna construct a society. And so what I'd like to ask each of you is to share um, a, couple of, a couple of dimensions of what an abolitionist society looks like for you. Um, I, Kelly and Zeb, I'm gonna start with you. I, I'm really intrigued by your move towards suggesting that communities can decide for themselves uh, about uh, blocking ICE, saying we don't wanna be a community from which people can be snatched up off the streets and deported and families can be torn apart. Um, can you talk a little bit more, share a, a couple of other dimensions of what an abolitionist society with particular regard to, um, to these sorts of issues would look like for you? I, I think that we should, human beings have been migrating since, since we've been human beings. Um, and I, I think that we should be inviting our fellow human beings in um, and welcoming them, assessing people's skills and interests and leveraging the very, very best of us to face the very, very serious issues that we are going to face with climate collapse and the rest. Um, it doesn't make any sense to me to, to do otherwise. Thank you. Zeb, how about you? Um, I think where I, I start with this, especially from an abolitionist perspective, is I really don't think the US has any moral standing as a nation to create immigration laws. Um, at the entire United States uh, of America, the system of government came from colonization. It came from indigenous genocide. It came from, you know, stealing land, breaking promises, breaking treaties, breaking their own sovereign laws to then create this government that we have right here. And I often hear people when they talk about undocumented citizens living in the U.S. say like, oh, they should come here the right way like my ancestors. And I'm like, the last thing we want anyone in the world to do is come here like my ancestors came here. Um, 
and that, that informs so much of my work, like, we need to be really humble that the United States of America is on, you know, stolen land. We need to work with indigenous people about what indigenous sovereignty is. And as the United States of the government recognize that we don't have the right to kick anyone from this land, the most we can do is welcome people graciously and work to repair relationships with the indigenous people of, um, of the continent and the place that we live. Because that's the only, only path that I think we can go forward with any moral standing. Thank you. Thank you both. Teresa and Sun, I'm going to turn to you. What, what, would, what would be part of your vision of an abolitionist future? Um, well, for me personally, I mean, exactly. I echo Kelly and Zeb, we're on indigenous territory. You know, they were here first. Um, and then the other thing I ask a lot of people and would love to hear other people answer is, when did America forget? Like, when did America forget that it was built by immigrants? Um, and that's the biggest challenge, right? Is people forgotten. Um, you know, ideally what we would like to see is better education for everyone. Um, because like in some situation, like he was brought here as a baby by his parents, you know, from a separate company, a country of what he's being sentenced home to now, you know, and I can't even call it a home. Um, people deserve a second chance. And that's what America needs to start looking at is like, stop being judgmental, stop, you know, giving people life sentences and stop the corruption in immigration law. You know, it's the only law that doesn't have a statute of limitations. And that's what I'm gonna be pushing for next is the statute of limitations, um, as, as hard as I can hit with it, you know? Honey, which, how would you answer that question? I mean, there's so much that I wanna say, but at the same time, it's just like, it's just, um, People are not educated, you know. I, I, I do want to, you know, see ICE gone. Um, you know, I mean, INS to ICE, a huge one in right there. You know, um, again, I mean, you know, this country. I mean, you know, Native Americans. You know, it's it's not it's not America. It's a Spanish. It's not an American name. It's it's a Latin name, you know? So. Yeah, it's just like open the borders, let people come in. I mean, regardless, you know, the only reason why people are coming in illegally is because the government's not allowing them to enter legally. You know, there's lotteries, there's paperwork, there's ungodly costs that a lot of people cannot afford. I mean, even us living here in America, I'm a US citizen and it's a challenge for me to afford half the application says, funds. You know, who has the right to say, you can come in and you can't come in, you know what I mean? You know? Exactly. Thank you, yes, exactly. Phil, I'm gonna to turn to you. Sure, that's a hard question to answer um, because there's so much to say. Uh, you know, our, our immigration laws, as noted, um, were, you know, created due to racial animus. Um, the first real immigration laws were the Chinese Exclusion Acts. For subsequent immigration laws, as the systems were um, beefed up a bit, really just to police the demographic profile um, of, of the United States population. Um, and that's, there's a lot of that residue, a ton of that residue on our current immigration system. Um, 
and you know, I, this is not a conversation that uh, the United States society has had in a very long time. Um, you know, the purpose of our immigration laws, why do we have them in the first place? Um, and so as a result, we have this awful black and white system that's driven by incarceration and removal. Um, and, you know, someone who works in the system that has never really you know, been affected by it as like a respondent proceedings or detainee, um, you know, I have to ask myself all the time, why do all these laws exist uh, in the first place? And um, I think uh, it's a very difficult question to tackle. I think um, uh, no one would come up with, with a, a, the same answer, um, but the current system as it is, um, requires a law enforcement body like ICE. It contemplates it. it, contemplates a law enforcement body like CBP because the consequence in our current system is uh, you're deported, right? If you violate the laws, that's, and, and that's kind of their job to go out there and try to find people who um, can be deported. Um, so you'd have to have a more flexible system, um, a system that would allow for a lot more people to come to the United States system that is uh, in lockstep with economic necessities in the United States, need, uh, also with humanitarian, strong humanitarian considerations, um, and uh, with um, uh, a lack or a far less um, law enforcement involvement. Um, you know, I think of a vision or a world without our current immigration system all the time and how it would look um, and how it would benefit, um, for, I think, everybody. Um, but it's uh, that's sadly not where the conversation lies. I think a lot of people uh, in our society, when I think of our immigration laws, they just think that they have to exist this way. This is just how it is. This is a natural way of doing it, um, uh, unfortunately. unfortunately. Um, and I think there's just a, a deeper conversation that needs to be had by lawmakers, um, uh, by, by uh, people within these agencies, um, and certainly within the executive administration. So. Um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. Um, that, that's actually just such a beautiful point to end on um, because this is our last episode in the Freedom and, and, and Captivity podcast series. And one of the things that we've been striving to do across all 12 episodes is to ask, why are we doing things the way that we're doing them? To sort of denaturalize the normal, denormalize the normal ask questions about um, practices and processes and laws and regulations that cause harm rather than safety. And to, to ask over and over and over again, how do we end up here? How do we end up with the system that we have now? Can we imagine a different kind of a system? What are the impacts and the effects and the harms being perpetrated by our current system? And why can't we stop doing what we're doing now? So. I, Everything that we've talked about in this episode points directly to the BMF that's become the management of border crossers, the management of immigration in this country. Uh, deeply complex system, deeply injurious and harmful system, a system that um, is designed to, to be opaque, uh, to cause harm, to, uh, to, to rip families apart, um, and to offer very few opportunities um, for sort of righteous self-representation. And it is, I think it's no secret that it's time we have to rethink the system, um, which is going to take courage and bravery. And clearly that's something that, that all of you share. And I salute you for that. And thank you uh, deeply for coming to this program today to talk about the work that you're doing and, uh, and the, the personal experiences that, that you've had in navigating the system. This once again is the Freedom and Captivity 
podcast. This is our final episode on immigration, detention, and deportation. Uh, you uh, can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, the Freedom and Captivity website, and the Portland Media Center website. The podcast has been sponsored by the Portland Media Center. I'd also like to thank Samuel James, whose music opens and closes each episode. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.